I can remember when the idea of raising the minimum wage $15 an hour was just a glint in the eye of a few people. Since 2012, there have been 86 jurisdictions that have adopted higher wages. And as a result, 26 million workers have won $150 billion in raises. The Fight for 15 movement is associated with a narrowing of the wealth gap. It turned out to really help unions, too. It helped yeah. the labor movement. The best part of the legacy is killing neoliberalism. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. I don't know if we've talked about this on the podcast before, Nick, but when it comes to our economic advocacy, you and I have kind of interrelated origin stories. A little bit. Uh, yeah, yeah. Back in, it was back in 2012 uh, when you first uh, drew ridicule from uh, some of your cohort and certainly from Forbes magazine for advocating a $15 minimum wage. I did. Right? That's true. That's right. true. Forbes called it uh, your uh, near insane idea. Yeah. And it was also uh, back in 2012 when I was a reporter for The Stranger, Seattle's Alt Weekly, that I first started covering the uh, fight for 15 uh, and uh, our our then uh, candidate, socialist candidate for city council, who was advocating for it, and our local union, uh, the uh, SEIU 775 that was pushing for it in SeaTac. Uh, and so I became very involved because I was an advocacy journalist. Uh, you know, I was never shy about it. I the, the things I covered, I covered in a certain biased way and was open about it. And you, as a fan of that coverage, reaching out to me and uh, we started working together in uh, 2014, right? Yeah. You know, probably told the story on pod before, but, you know, the fight for 15 and the $15 minimum wage, all of that stuff for me and my colleague, um, David Rolfe, were a product of the frustration we felt when the best the Obama administration could do was advocate for $9 an hour. Uh, which Unsuccessfully. Is that, yeah, by the way, yeah. <laughs> uh, my head exploded. David and I were just so angry about that. And we thought, you know, to hell with it. We have to do something independently. So we started talking about doing something much more ambitious and landed on 15, which was halfway in between where the minimum wage would be if it had tracked inflation and where it uh, would be if it had tracked productivity gains over the last 30 years or something like that. And and yeah, I mean, you know, like 100 percent of the academic economists thought we had lost our minds. But, you know, we, we had high confidence and we prevailed over time. Uh, and it was it was David's idea to try to do the $15 minimum wage in SeaTac, which was this really narrow, aggressive experiment. And when that succeeded, it spilled over into Seattle and the movement was born. Uh, in addition to the workers going on strike for 15 at fast food restaurants and so on and so forth around the country being led by uh, David's org, SEIU. So 
Yeah, I mean, it has been a long slog. Uh, it's been so long that 15 probably doesn't make any sense anymore. 25 is probably the number we should be focused <laughs> on. Uh, but, you know, I, I do think, and we'll talk to our guests today about it, I do think that the legacy of the fight for 15 has a lot more to do with changing the economic narrative around cause and effect than it does about around wages. Though right? it turns out, it did have a lot of impact about wages. It and did. It on did. wages did. on the economy as a whole, and so that's why we have we have a couple guests on today from uh, NELP, which is the National Employment Law Project, uh, who recently did a report looking back on the legacy of the past ten years of minimum wage hikes, which, by the way have happened all locally in cities and counties and states. The federal minimum wage after 10 years is still $7.25 an hour. Yeah. It has not budged. Yeah. Um, we've been working with NELP uh, for a very long time, well, really since the beginning on all of this stuff. But And Bill Lester, uh, who we're get, getting to talk to, did a really important study for us some years ago where we asked him to go back and analyze all of the minimum wage increases since inception, since uh, the FSLA uh, was instituted in 1937, 38. Uh, yeah. Well, whatever, uh, because we've been running this. I mean, part of my frustration was that we've been running this natural experiment for almost 100 years. And yet every time we raise the minimum wage, we have to have the same conversation about whether it's going to kill jobs. Uh, because, you know, the Chamber of Commerce's best attack has always been that it will be a job killer, that if they have if they're forced to pay people more, they'll just fire them all. Also, because that's what's taught in your Econ 101 textbook. Yes. And most politicians, policymakers and journalists never get beyond Econ 101. Right. Absolutely. And so. Bill did this amazing study for us going back to the beginning and showed definitively that in zero cases, effectively, where the minimum wage went up, was there overall job loss in the economy? And in particular, one of the really interesting findings was is that the more affected by the minimum wage people were, not, not just there weren't job losses, but in fact, those industries grew faster. Why? Because... Uh, neoclassical economics is wrong. It's not a Pareto <laughs> optimal equilibrium where if one thing goes up, another thing goes down. It's a it's a complex adaptive ecology where when workers earn more money, businesses have more customers and hire more workers, which is why raising the minimum wage is not a job killer. It's a job creator. But we digress. Let's uh, let's talk to our guests, Goldie, and hear about the report. My name is Janet Lathrop, and I am a researcher and policy analyst at the National Employment Law Project. I'm Bill Lester. I'm a professor of urban and regional planning at uh, San Jose State University, where I'm also a department chair. So Bill and I uh, have collaborated uh, along with another uh, co-author, Matt, uh, on a 2022 report that we published at the end of the last year, which uh, tries to look at the impacts of uh, the fight for 15 beyond just wages uh, on equity, uh, racial equity, and on uh, sort of a broader sense of what that that impact was. Well, um, let 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 me start out by saying that it's kind of hard to believe that it's been almost 10 years since we all started to work on this. I can remember that when it was just 
when the idea of raising the minimum wage $15 an hour was just a glint in the eye of a few people. Uh, <laughs> and we have uh, come so far. Can you guys start by characterizing how far we've come in, ter in terms of raising wages for workers? Yeah, so I can say that uh, since 2012, there have been 86 jurisdictions that have adopted uh, higher wages. That's about 28 states and 58 cities and counties. So it's a, a combination of local and mm -hmm. state uh, governments raising wages. Uh, the majority of them now are on a path to 15. So 12 states and 52 localities are on a path to 15. And some of them have already achieved 15 and are beyond 15 at this point. Um, Hawaii actually, in 20, last year, in 2022, adopted a, a law that will take them to $18 an hour by, I believe, 2028. So there's definitely a lot of progress being made in, in terms of how many states have uh, joined the call for higher wages. And as a result of uh, most of those higher wages, um, we estimated, Bill, uh, Matt, and I estimated uh, in a previous report that 26 million workers have won 150 billion in, in raises. Uh, most of them are, or a significant share of those workers are uh, workers of color, and their share, workers of color share of the higher wages, is about 50% of the total. That's great. Not that we're competing, uh, but what jurisdiction currently has the highest minimum wage in the country? Uh, Goldie, I Goldie, where yeah. are we in Seattle? We, well, I think yeah. we're not the highest. It would be oh, probably no. it would be SeaTac. <laughs> oh, do we? Do that's we, right. Yeah. Is that true? Uh, I would have to look at my map, but that uh, or my my tracking sheet. But I believe that's right. SeaTac, uh, though, obviously. So, so the difference, I guess, is the Seattle's minimum wage applies to everyone in Seattle, and SeaTac yeah. it applies to like uh, the airport industry, basically. Yeah, but uh, in Seattle, where are we? It is eighteen sixty nine an hour. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And in SeaTac, it's nineteen oh six. But yeah. but awesome. I think Tuck Willa's new measure may end up passing us both. If I'm if I'm correct. Uh, so I believe so. That's not going to be until July, and I believe right. they're going to be basically pegging their minimum wage to SeaTac. So right. it may be about the same as CTAC, more They'll less. be pegging okay. it to CTAC, but it will be applied more broadly. I think it's yes. the Seattle standards in terms of application, but pegging it to CTAC in terms of the number. Yeah. I think there's an exception exemption for small employers. Yes. I don't recall like what the definition of small is, but yeah. And at the so, state level, California is currently the highest at 1550. Uh, and if mm -hmm. D.C. were a state, it would be the highest at sixteen fifty. because it's always a higher, a $1 higher in D.C. But yes, so, so local governments are pushing even higher. That's and so they, great. they have been for, for a long time, they have been really at the forefront of the 5 for 15. And states right. have uh, been, you know, taking the lead or sorry, lead uh, following in, in their lead. Yeah. So the, the core of the fight for 15 was over economic cause and effect. Right. The prevailing economic wisdom, the conventional neoclassical view was that if you raised weight, there was effectively an inverse mechanical relationship between wages and the number of jobs. And that the more we raise the minimum wage, the more jobs we would kill. And, you know, the central part of our fight was killing that idea, which was never true. And I mean, let, let's be clear. But when we say this, that is literally the chart in Principles of Economics, Manku's Econ 101 textbook, that to illustrate the relationship, the inverse relationship uh, between 
well, price and and demand. They literally use the minimum wage to show you that if you raise the minimum wage, it kills jobs. Mathematically, naturally, inevitably. Yes. Like physics. That, That is what they teach in economics. Hopefully that's starting to change a little bit. I mean, it does depend on your assumptions, of course. Um, uh, there's a famous joke about assumptions in a can opener, Econ 101, that my uh, professor told me, but it's kind of a dad joke, so I won't tell it. But basically, there's currently in economics, there's, there's now a, a sort of an alternative view of the labor market from this, instead of this textbook neoclassical uh, model, there's a model uh, called a monopsony view uh, or a monopsonistic uh, view of the labor market, which actually changes some of the basic assumptions that you know, we're not at just a perfectly competitive labor market where workers will immediately flee for one penny higher or demand for employment will go down immediately if wages are raised. At the core of this monopsony idea is that employers have some measure of wage setting power. And when they do that, the, the lines on the chart look a little different and you can actually raise wages uh, and employment in that case could actually increase instead of decrease. Uh, and it becomes from uh, the starting point where we're not at that perfectly competitive equilibrium because when employers have power, they can keep wages sort of artificially low compared to what the competitive equilibrium would be and have higher profits. And so uh, some of the research that's come out uh, by uh, other economists have shown that there really is increasing evidence that the labor market in the U.S. and in certain industries does look more like monopsonistic labor market than the perfectly competitive model that Goldie talked about with, that, that everybody who's taken undergrad econ 101 probably reads in the first uh, month or two. Um, so but without getting into the sort of theoretical weeds there, they're beginning to change some, some ideas about how the American labor market works. And it really at the core comes back to how much power employers have in wage setting. Yeah. The whole thing is just so comical. Well, let's, you know, we should just, we should just say, uh, explain in case you're not a longtime listener, what monopsony is. Yeah. It's kind of this, it's kind of like monopoly, monopoly, except instead of having this uh, uh, dominance in terms of selling things, it's a dominance in terms of buying things such as labor. So uh, you're like a monopoly employer, uh, like Walmart is in many communities. So without without going into the, you know, a long, long thing on why even that monopsony labor market analysis is not a true reflection of how market economies work. I think what's important is to recognize uh, that the achievement of the fight for 15 was in pushing back on that uh, orthodoxy and breaking it effectively first and second all the other benefits that your new report details on the broader economy and even on workers that didn't participate in the fight for 15. So would you expand on that? I think that's really important. That That's the central argument of your new report. Yeah, but I, I will, first of all, um, before I get into that, I, I will add that I think one of the achievements of the fight for 15 has also been uh, in um giving workers a sense of their agency. And that mm-hmm. I, I think that's yeah. a very important uh, no, part of exactly. that. Medicine. Yeah, yeah, 100%. The original fast food strike was uh, for $15 and the right to organize. Yeah. Right. Those were the two demands. Yeah. Right, exactly. So so tell us more about your report and the effectively the ripple effects that this has had on the economy. 
So in the in this report, we uh, the 2022 report, we examined the extent to which the five for fifteen has had equitable impacts, and uh, we looked at the period 2013 to 2019. And we found that in uh, during that time, that worker wealth grew faster in states that adopted higher higher wages uh, versus those that didn't adopt higher wages. So the uh, worker wealth grew uh, by 74% in states with higher wages and by only 55% in those uh, that didn't uh, raise wages. The wealth of workers, um, it, which we measured by uh, median uh, net worth, the wealth of workers grew faster for uh, Black and Latinx workers in higher wage states by about 174% uh, for Black workers and 211% for uh, Latinx workers. And that uh, the this wealth, worker wealth grew especially faster in states on the path to 15. So for Black workers uh, in states on the path for, to 15, the um, their wealth grew by 186%. And for Latinx workers, by a hundred for by two hundred thirty three percent, and uh, we took those numbers. We uh, also looked at what the gap, the the racial uh, wealth gap was, and um, we found that the gap between white white worker wealth and the wealth of workers of color narrowed, uh, which makes sense, right? Uh, where the uh, the wealth of, of workers of color grows faster than the wealth of white workers, so we're probably going to see some narrowing of the wealth gap. Yeah. So uh, the black black to white uh, wealth gap narrowed by uh, about forty point three uh, points uh, in higher wage states, and by fifty four point three uh, points in uh, states on the path to fifteen. And for Latinx workers, the racial wealth gap uh, narrowed by twenty nine point four percentage points uh, in um, higher wage states, and by forty eight percentage points in in uh, states on the path to fifteen. Uh, I just want to make a couple points to clarify that uh, well, white worker wealth grew too. So to be clear, this yes. did not come at the expense of white workers. Um, right. Their wealth grew substantially as well. It's just that that black and Latino wealth grew faster. Faster. That's right. So for uh, white workers, uh, wealth grew. One of the differences is that for white workers, wealth grew. It didn't really. It also grew, but it didn't really matter whether we're in high wage states or low wage states. It, it grew by about fifty percent percent during that time, uh, whether or not the the uh, they were in working states that had higher wages or no increases. So it was, uh, yeah, it was still uh, obviously a, an important uh, thing, uh, an important uh, result for white workers as well. But yeah, yeah. Uh, compared to black and uh, Latinx workers, that yeah. Uh, wealth. And I just wanted to add a clarifying comment, which for listeners who, for whom who don't work on this stuff every day, and it's it's pretty obvious, but that the reason the minimum wage or any kind of labor standard like that disproportionately uh, benefits workers of color and frankly women is because those the groups with the least amount of power who have been historically the most exploited benefit the most when you raise the standard. And this is one of the wonders and uh, great things about raising the minimum wage. Uh, and we should be raising it a lot more than 15 by now, probably to 25, which is that you you compress upwards uh, the wages of everyone and you create. But you don't you don't just make everybody richer. You also create more equity, which is just a fantastic thing. 
Yeah, I, I think the the other thing to point out here is is to be clear, we're talking about wealth, not income. One of the arguments against the minimum wage was always that, oh, it'll just hurt the people you're trying to help. Sure, their wages might go up, but their costs are going to go up too. It's just an inflationary cycle. So they won't benefit from this. But we're we're talking wealth. Their actual wealth has gone up. That's correct. Can I just uh, make a couple of comments putting on my urban planner hat a bit? This is incredibly important findings that the fight for 15 movement is associated with uh, a narrowing of the wealth gap. But we have to remember that the wealth gap in America, the racial wealth gap, is still very, very high. Oh, yeah. Uh, and the the, the, <laughs> yeah. The, the the drivers of those things are things like historical redlining, access to home ownership, et cetera, et cetera. And in the United States today, we're, we're not really pushing policies on a broad base to try to address that. I mean, some politicians are starting to look at that. But you can think of the fight for 15 movement in some ways as one of the only policy movements that's moving the needle on this, uh, uh, at least in some minor way. And if you think about the wealth of, of the of workers who are being impacted, the, the median wealth is still quite low, but yeah. it's probably t- it's, it's the reason why it's increasing is that some of those negative net worths are, are, are turning into either zeros or positive. So people are getting out of debt with those higher wages or people are, are buying a car or buying maybe even buying a home. And, and building assets, uh, but it's still, it's not gonna address the major gap until we talk about talk yeah. about housing and other issues. But it, it's it's kind of amazing to me, as someone who studies both housing and redlining and the history of urban planning, as well as these labor policies, that labor policies are actually moving the needle in a way that a lot of folks who study urban planning don't even realize or don't even, don't even focus on. And so um, I think kind of bringing the fight for 15 movement into that discussion, uh, the, the labor policies into the discussion around uh, the wealth gap is, I think, an important step. Oh, that's super interesting. The other, th- the other thing that your p- report highlights is that there have been broader positive economic impacts to the overall economy. In our report, we looked at uh, two, two broader, other broader outcomes. First is um, looking at the impact of the movement on unionization in, in, in general, and unionization in two points. How has the movement affected union density? meaning the percentage of workers who are covered by a union contract, as well as how has it affected existing union members in terms of, okay, there's this outside, not necessarily union contract movement pushing the moral needle on wage levels up to 15 or even higher. Well, how has that impacted workers that are already part of a union and, and made it maybe easier for them to ask for, for wage increases? And so those are the two things we looked at. And in the period between 2011 and 2021, uh, union membership, increased by 3.8% in states that had raised their minimum wage or were on a path to 15, but actually decreased uh, 9.9% in states that uh, only apply the federal minimum wage. And a lot of those states are in the, in the South. Um, so if you put that in the context of the last, say, 30 or 40 years and what's happened to union density in the United States of going down pretty much every year, sometimes it's went up and up and down. But that's, that's, that's important to say we're kind of reversing the trend a bit. Um, not to say that it's a 100% cause just by the fight for 15, but it's nonetheless uh, associated. It came bore out in the, the data that we looked at. Um, and the second thing is looking at uh, uh, existing union uh, members and how they were impacted. So the median hourly wage of union members in these states that did pass a higher minimum wage grew three times as fast as their counterparts in these federal states. Um, so that's 16.7 uh, wage growth uh, compared to 5.2%. So there's something going on uh, there, an association. So that's the impact on, on unions and union members and union density. Um, the sort of third outcome variable we looked at was just the overall economic impact or kind of what we economists might refer to as the multiplier effect. 
So you have essentially a shift of income when you raise the minimum wage to 15 or, or, or whatever level you're talking about, that money is obviously going to go to minimum wage workers or workers who are affected or get receive wages because of the policy. Um, but, you know, some of us, that has to come from somewhere. Somebody has to pay for that. So all of us may be paying for that with uh, a little bit higher prices. Uh, there may be some savings to employers in terms of reduced turnover and higher productivity uh, and perhaps some uh, reduced profits, say, at fast food restaurant chains. So uh, what we did was we looked at an economic impact of the, the, the wage increases that, that we estimated in our first report. So we took that, I think, 150 billion, uh, as you mentioned, that was uh, due to these uh, minimum wage increases over the last 10 years and looked at, okay, because of that additional household spending that goes on, how many extra jobs are supported by the economy? And that we accounted for that households throughout the income distribution have to pay a little bit more. So we used a model called Implan, which is a kind of industry standard economic impact input output model to look at what happened if you just kind of shift these resources around in the US economy. Um, and the estimate is that there's an additional $87.6 billion in annual economic output or sales or economic activity that's generated from that spending. Uh, when low-wage workers get that raise, they come and they spend more of their income, so they're going to have uh, more of an economic multiplier effect. And that economic output supports, we estimate, around uh, 452,000 jobs uh, each year. So that's kind of the counter argument to when people say, oh, the minimum wage just kills jobs. Well, actually, if you give workers a raise and they tend to spend money in their local economies, um, they don't buy you know, European vacations and yachts quite as much as higher income uh, workers. That money circulates and it actually creates jobs. And so that's one of the things we estimated in, in this report. You know, it's common sense, but also over the period we're, we're talking about here, 2013 through 2019, right? Because you, you can only go up to the pandemic. You can't use pandemic numbers ever in <laughs> the pandemic has ruined economics for, for forever because none of the charts work anymore. But when you, you look at it, we had a ton of wage growth over that period and unemployment plummeted as the minimum wage was rising. So there's no evidence of that job, that alleged job killing effect. And yet, let me ask you this, the, the last time the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, uh, analyzed uh, proposed minimum wage hikes, uh, they projected hundreds of thousands of job losses. I believe how it was do millions. They I believe it was millions. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, how do they continue to support that type of modeling in face of reality, what we've learned over the past 10 years? So Bill can maybe explain this a little bit better, but my understanding is that the CBO uh, um, estimates sort of give equal weight to older studies that have the baked in uh, assumption about uh, job losses to the more uh, more modern, more sophisticated studies that actually do try to understand, you know, what the impact of higher wage uh, minimum wages are uh, and whether or not they really do cause any job losses. So giving equal weight to both, I think, is what has made the CBO studies and they have done this a couple of times, at, uh, at least, uh, uh, you know, uh, they have uh, made the CBO studies come up with a result of job losses. So I, I guess it's it's part of the, the explanation of that is that they are still, you know, uh, assuming that there will be job losses, even while acknowledging that more recent research maybe doesn't find the, the, the same amount of job losses. No, that's a great summary. I could get into the weeds of the methodological differences between these older studies and the newer studies. But essentially, I think 
yeah, what Yannette said was right. But they were kind of trying to be Solomonic about like, let's just say, okay, maybe these old estimates of these like very big elasticity, negative elasticities for minimum wage, balance that out with some of these newer studies that show zero uh, or close to zero um, without actually digging into the weeds about what is a better, I, I think better, but more rational uh, methodology and, and weighting it accordingly. They just kind of said, okay, we're going to pick something, pick an elasticity in the middle, which happens to be negative. And then you multiply that by a big number and you get another big number. Yeah. So, so they're giving equal weight to outdated theories as they do to uh, models based on data. <laughs> yeah. And just, I mean, if I could try to put, put it as, as best I can in, in layman's terms, the, the studies that show a negative elasticity or a negative impact uh, of raising the minimum wage, the wage and employment levels uh, were done by comparing states over time, say a 20 year time period. And OK, so Texas didn't raise the minimum wage and uh, New York did. And what happened? Right. And so what that doesn't take into account is these broader population shifts. Right. People have been moving for reasons unrelated to minimum wage for the last 20 years to Texas and other places, these high growth states. And so they're going to have faster job growth because they're building new suburbs. They're building, putting up, uh, you know, fast food restaurants and strip malls, which at a, at a pace that is driven you know, much faster by population change in these states compared to uh, uh, the states that had a, a higher minimum wage, like New York, Massachusetts, the District of Columbia and California. Uh, and so if you if you just take those comparisons and say, OK, well, it's going to turn out negative. But if you actually look at a more micro level and say, okay, the classic study was New Jersey versus Pennsylvania, and we look at employer employments right across the, the border from one county to the next, we actually see that there is no effect. And so that's where you would actually be able to observe a more causal relationship between the minimum wage and employment. Uh, and you wouldn't be driven by these biases that are largely driven by by things Cheap real estate. minimum wage. Cheap, well, and just yeah. population yeah. shifts. And population yeah. shifts have been going on for decades. Yeah, right. It, Absolutely. It's funny, what, what we saw here in Seattle, what we were told would happen when we raised our minimum wage was that these jobs would move across the city line into the, the town surrounding Seattle. And what we actually saw was that the uh, wages went up in the town surrounding Seattle to compete for for workers. The jobs, it, we didn't export jobs, we exported the minimum wage. Yes. So where do you think the, you know, the fifth, the five for 15 is 10 years old. What should we be fighting for today? So that depends. <laughs> well, newer uh, proposals for, for higher wages are now in the $20 range in New yeah. York mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, California, for example. Although not quite twenty dollars in Hawaii, eighteen dollars uh, was one. So it, you know, the wage rate, the target wage rate now is increasing closer to twenty or even beyond twenty. And I think that's the right range for you know. It's been like you said, ten years, uh, and it's been a while. Inflation has taken a big bite out yeah, of people's paychecks, right. especially yeah. over the past couple of years. It makes complete sense to to start to look at twenty dollar plus range. Yeah, uh, Goldie, remind me uh, where uh, where Washington State's uh, minimum wage just reset to, basically because we have an inflation adjustment in the state. Yeah, we have it in in, in Seattle and and uh, uh, Washington. Didn't Let's it go see, up to about sixteen dollars? We are up to fifteen seventy four. Is that right? Fifteen seventy four. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. And and just to point out, to put this all in context, that first fast food strike in October of 2012, uh, demanding $15 in the right to organize, uh, if you if you adjust that fifteen dollars for inflation, it would be nineteen thirty one. Ten years later, October to October. So when you look at that, the the wage in Seattle um, and SeaTac and Tukwila and other places that are in that eighteen to nineteen dollar range, uh, that's about right, adjusted for inflation. So uh, one final question. Why do you guys do this work? Yannette, you first. Uh, well, I personally am passionate about uh, labor policies that benefit workers uh, and especially the lowest pay, paid workers. So, and I've been uh, with NELF for that reason for, uh, well, not quite 10 years, but going on th that uh, a decade um, soon. Uh, so for me, it's a both a personal, uh, I guess, interest and also obviously because of my, uh, I work for an employer that does advocate for better employment policies uh, for for all workers and especially for low, uh, the the most uh, vulnerable workers. So uh, that's one of the reasons why I do that. Um, and also, you know, the 5 for 15 has been, I think, impressed a lot of people. You know, it's uh, achieved so much and it's been something that we definitely need to, to take into consideration when we're looking at um, the impact of policies, especially economic policies. It's like, what does a movement like the Five for Fifteen has done? What has been the impact? The impact, and so that's one of the reasons why uh, we we have worked. Uh, Bill, Matt, and I have collaborated in, in these past two reports on looking specifically at the Five for Fifteen. Cool. And Bill, how about you? My my story is a little a little different. I mean, I've been working with Nell for for years, but my sort of original um, interest in 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 this came about from urban planning, which is a little strange way to get to labor yeah. economics. Yeah. Um, so growing up, I was sort of fascinated by, I grew up in the south side of Chicago in a neighborhood called Hyde Park that, that was hyper, very, very segregated by income. Hyde Park was an integrated middle-class neighborhood. The neighborhoods surrounding that in the 1990s were some of the poorest in the city. And I've studied all these urban planning policies about why that occurred, but the sort of a more immediate solution to trying to solve the, the equity problem was just getting more money to people who were working in, in, in low wage industries. And some of the jobs, the only jobs that were left in a deindustrialized city like Chicago were in the service sector. And there was nothing else there to address that besides uh, these minimum wage policies. And so that's kind of where I got really interested into working on the impact of minimum wage and living wage policies. But that brings me back to sort of your last question about where, where what's gonna happen next or where we hope things go next. I would like to see sort of a, a, a merging of interests between advocates who are interested in, in raising up the bottom of the labor market through policies like the minimum wage and the fight for 15 movement and the union uh, unions in this country with organizations that are trying to impact, say, affordable housing. So here in California, where I live and work, California has been a leader in minimum wage and it's gone up, but uh, rents have gone up even faster. Yeah. And so we haven't done a thing really about building more housing. Um, and those those advocacy networks are, I think, somewhat are somewhat siloed and are not necessarily uh, working well with each other. And that's something I'd, I'd like to work on is try to connect these two movements or policy initiatives uh, or really dialogues. And to think about, okay, if you're really interested in just equity, that's the ultimate goal. Um, there are kind of at least two levers, probably three or four, if you think about health and uh, other uh, uh, silos. But 
if you just only focus on one and not the other, you may not end up with the ideal sort of equity outcome. And I'll echo of just because Matt's not on the, Matt Wilson, who's not on the, on the call today. Um, he's been working on these same, he's an urban planner and also is interested in, in labor issues. And so um, it's been a great to work with my former PhD student on this and um, hope to continue work with him and Yannette on, on these issues. That's really fantastic. Well, you guys, thank you so much for being with us and thank you even more for your work on this issue so important and much has been accomplished but much needs to be done so hopefully more to come right yeah and thank you for uh highlighting our report here yeah thank you you know we said in 2012 and we said since 2012 and we're still saying uh that the conventional wisdom around economic cause and effect is wrong uh, the way that academic economists look at the economy is wrong. And as a consequence of that, the world looks upside down to them all the time, mm-hmm. right? They, they, they just simply are astonished by the fact that when we raise the minimum wage, it did not kill jobs, which puts you in this weird and super unfortunate position of needing to affirmatively prove that there will be no harm from policies that obviously benefit the majority of people. Right. It it was good for the economy. It was pro-growth, right? The economy grew and jobs grew. Yes. Right. And then I think the, the, the one thing which we hadn't really expected, the positive impact we hadn't really thought through entirely was it turned out to really help unions too. It helped the labor movement. And to be clear, a lot of the support for it was through the SEIUs, but the SEIUs were not the entire labor movement. And there was some skepticism from some of the unions because raising wages for their members is what their job is. They represent their own members. And it wasn't clear what the impact would be when you moved this out of the hands of contract negotiators for unions and into the hands of uh, ballot measures and politicians to advocate for that that higher wage floor. And it turned out to be good across the board. Yeah. That uh, union wages are higher and union membership is higher in the uh, states that raised the minimum wage than uh, those that did not. And vindication across the board. But when I look back on this, I think there's a, and we've touched on it, there's a a more profound result uh, that we've seen over the past 10 years. And that is the impact that the 50, Fight for 15 and the positive results from the Fight for 15 have had on the broader economic policy and political narrative. Yeah, 100%. The, the legacy of the $15 minimum wage, the best part of the legacy is killing neoliberalism. Right. Right. It, 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 because if you can show that the orthodox neoliberal view of economic cause and effect is not true when you raise wages for workers, then obviously it's not true for most of what it claims. Right. right? right? Or at that, least it. It, it raises that question. I mean, yeah. th- this issue of that, and we'll go back to that great uh, James Buchanan, Nobel right. Prize winning economist, James Buchanan, where he's correct when he says that that the claim that there is an inverse 
relationship between price and demand is absolutely fundamental to economics, right? That's when he he called that original study showing that the minimum wage actually, well, actually, it might have actually increased jobs. Uh, he called those economists camp following whores. That's right. This this famous or infamous Wall Street Journal op-ed uh, from the 90s. This is a wedge issue. It he is. understood it for what it was. Yeah. If this claim is correct, that the minimum wage not only doesn't kill jobs, but has created jobs, it calls into question all of neoclassical economics, not just neoliberalism, yeah. but all of neoclassical economics, which is based on equilibrium models that say it must have this yes. inverse relationship. Correct. When you raise the price of something, people buy less of it. And that makes sense. And it does yeah. happen that way sometimes. Sometimes. But it's not like physics, which and, is and, what And the labor claim. market in particular is different, right. right? Because a labor market is an ecosystem. Think about it like plants and animals, right? The, the more plants grow, the more animals grow. Wages are what businesses eat to grow and thrive. And if wages, if nobody has any money, nobody will, nobody will buy any stuff. This is the fundamental law of capitalism. And, you know, what is both sort of amusing and frustrating is even a person like Bill Lester, who is so smart and so amazing and so on our side, has to squint his eyes and effectively jury rig the existing the, the monopsony existing frame. argument. Yeah, yeah, the monopsony yeah, you know, argument, right? Like I, I do this... want to get I do want to get into that, Nick, because I almost brought it up with Bill. Yeah. To be clear, even Mankiw's textbook, Principles of Economics, the, the textbook they use at Harvard and many other yeah. universities to teach introductory economics, even in that chart that says that when you raise the minimum wage, it necessarily kills jobs, there's an asterisk in there where they say, well, the opposite could be true in a monopsony environment. But they don't believe that a monopsony environment is actually possible, <laughs> right? It's And when they say monopsony- Or that it will be the exception to the rule. Right, <laughs> right. But, but also when they, when they say monopsony, let's be clear, they're using in the same way that they say monopoly. They don't mean one employer, right? One purchaser of, of, of labor. They mean- you know, maybe a handful with a dominant role where they can actually set the market, you know, where, yeah. where they, they can set prices. So to keep that model working, say, oh, well, maybe we're in a monopsony environment. Oh, that's, it's unusual, or maybe it's not unusual. That doesn't hold. I don't think we can let them get away with that because there are a lot of employers out there who do not have a lot of power. There's right. a lot of small businesses Right. right. And so what's happening is it's not just that there's Walmart and McDonald's and, you know, a handful of big companies who are setting these wages in these low wage markets. There's a lot of small businesses in there. Most of those jobs are actually provided by small businesses in most of the country. And they are paying minimum wage. And the reason why they're paying minimum wage is because they can. Correct. And so when when they can't, as we saw in Seattle, when we raised the minimum wage in Seattle and they couldn't, and then those same businesses outside of Seattle were now competing for workers 
with businesses in Seattle that were attracting all the best workers because they were paying a higher wage. They raised prices too. And it turned raised wages, uh, too. wages too. And it turned out that it didn't end up with job loss. Uh, in fact, these industries grew faster than they had been growing before as right. they were ways raising their wages. This isn't just an ascaris, an exception to the rule. Turns out, I believe this is the rule. Correct. Correct. And, you know, the frustration and again, the purpose of the pod is to get people to see that the conventional economic wisdom isn't just upside down. It's sort of perniciously mm -hmm. harmful every day because it requires you to affirmatively prove that every reasonable thing you might want to do to help people uh, isn't going to create harms. Now, th th there is no study that's been done by any organization uh, uh, analyzing the job killing impacts of giant Wall Street bonuses. <laughs> right. Those things are assumed to be an unalloyed good. When, when in fact, I think there actually is more evidence. Huge, huge <laughs> job killing impact that that, that Wall Street bonuses and stock buybacks cost jobs. Well, of course, as, of course uh, they do. Whereas minimum wage creates jobs. Yes. But this is the crazy thing is that, you know, one and a half trillion dollars worth of stock buybacks is assumed to be an unalloyed good and good for the economy with no job impact. Uh, when in fact, if you took that 1.2 trillion, just a trillion dollars and thought, well, what, what if you paid that out instead of to shareholders, to workers at $50,000 per worker, it's 20 million jobs for God's sakes. It's so crazy. And this is the fight that we're in. And this is why these discussions are so consequential is that we have to get the world to have a different view of economic cause and effect so that it's Wall Street bonuses that are scrutinized for their job killing impact, not raising wages for working people. It's just it's 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 backwards. Right. So my takeaway to sum all this up, Nick, is that, uh, you know, the appropriately named fight for 15, that the fight has had as much impact as the 15. Correct. Right. Well, well said. Um, that the good news is that uh, we have raised the minimum wage substantially throughout the nation in 20 some states in many cities and counties to the advantage of low wage workers, in particular people of color and women who disproportionately uh, have these jobs, these low wage, these minimum wage jobs. It has been a net plus across the board. We were proven right that it wasn't a job killer, that it would improve their lives, that it would be good for the economy. The bad news is, is that 10 years later, Nick, the federal minimum wage is still $7.25 an right. hour. And 10 years later, they are still using the same economics textbooks. <laughs> With a little monopsony thrown on top. Well, yeah. no, that exactly. asterisk was always there. Maybe now they're teaching the asterisk yeah. more than they used to be. But those same textbooks are still being used, uh, teaching people just enough economics to do them harm. Yeah, there you go.
of course, uh, the link to that NELP report, the 10-year legacy of the fight for 15 and a union movement, the link is in our show notes, and we encourage you to, to read it through and, and gloat along with us. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.